there's this reward, the orgasm, that is the best thing that can happen to a human being. It's the biggest carrot that evolution has at its disposal. Chimpanzees would think, if they could even understand our abilities, would find them magical. If I'm going to try to trick you into trusting me when you shouldn't, I need my PFC in perfect working order. Because lying is a cognitively really demanding task. I haven't written any of this drunk because at that point it had all been written on caffeine. And so I went down to the hotel bar with my laptop and ordered a Negroni. This is this balance between preparation and spontaneity. Welcome to a load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. This is the final load of BS before the Christmas holidays, and I've saved you a cracker, excuse the pun. Not only is Ted Slingerland a seductive and stimulating speaker, he also takes us into a world we know only too well at this time of year, lashings of alcohol. Now, last year, Ted wrote Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. The story of booze through human history, how it bonds us together, how it fosters creativity and innovation, and how it, of course, can do us damage. But centrally, why it most certainly is not an evolutionary mistake, the central premise of the story. There's so much more to Ted than this, however, and I highly recommend you also explore his 2015 book, Trying Not to Try, The Ancient Art of Effortlessness and the Surprising Power of Spontaneity, which discusses the paradox of being spontaneous without trying too hard, written through the lens of early Chinese philosophy, another of Ted's great interests and research fields. Now, there's plenty more on Ted. Uh, at edwardslingerland.com. You can read there about his distinguished academic career and you'll have all the links to his brilliant talks amongst other things at TED and Google, uh, amongst plenty of other information about TED, So, if you wish to read it. So, to sing us out for the year, swaying to the intoxicating tones of Ted's words, I'm talking with him about why it's good getting buzzed now and again, the evolutionary costs of masturbation and junk food and the end of the three martini lunch. Now, if you've got the time, measure yourself a single malt, lovingly prepare a Negroni, or just pour yourself a glass of Pinot Grigio, stop whatever you're doing, sit back in a comfy chair, and listen in. In vino veritas. Ted, welcome to a load of BS. I'm delighted you're here today. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Now, Ted, your primary area of research and writing is early Chinese philosophy, and you bring this to life in your 2015 book, Trying Not to Try, in which you discuss how we can lead more meaningful lives, and you lean on the early Chinese ideal of effortless action, relaxed success, the idea of being spontaneous without trying too hard. In other words, you make the argument that the more we try, the more we risk sabotaging ourselves, I suppose. Now, there's something of a knotty paradox to disentangle there. But firstly, why don't you just tell us some things about you, your background and your formative years, which take you on a path towards the study of the mind, these Taoist and Confucian traditions, and then to the study of alcohol which, of course, is what we're going to spend a bit more time thinking about today. 
So my day job is early Chinese philosophy. That's my, my training is in Sinology and religious studies, philosophy, comparative religion. So that's my main area of specialty. But I got interested actually right after grad school. I realized that some of the questions I was interested in in Chinese philosophy also involved learning something about the way the mind worked. And so I started getting into first cognitive linguistics, so conceptual metaphor theory, Lakoff and Johnson type stuff, then conceptual blending. Then I got interested in how these things worked in the mind. So I got interested in neuroscience, behavioral neuroscience, and then why is the body brain system the way it is? I got interested in evolutionary theory. And I started down this very weird path where I actually ended up taking about seven years off and retraining myself in evolutionary and cognitive sciences just because. I got tenure doing relatively traditional looking things. And then I used it for what it's supposed to be for, which is having the luxury to do other sorts of things intellectually. And nowadays it's hard to know what I am because I'm in a philosophy department. I'm adjunct in psychology and Asian studies, but my PhD is in religious studies. I hang out primarily with psychologists. So I have an odd intellectual profile now, but it's all driven by the questions I'm interested in. You know, the earliest project, my first monograph was on this idea of effortless action. And I felt like it when I wrote that first trade book, Trying Not to Try, the reason I wanted to reach a larger audience with it is I do think there's something important about having an alternate ideal of action. So I think that partially because of the influence of recent Enlightenment thought in Europe, we tend to think of success as something you achieve through striving. So if you're not successful, work harder. If you run into a barrier, you know, double down and pull an all-nighter. It's all about trying, striving, and if you work hard enough, you'll get what you want. And my point in trying not to try is that this alternate ideal that these early Taoists and Confucians had is more helpful in many situations, not in all situations, but there are important goals in life that can't be attained through direct striving. So things like happiness, trust, spont love, creativity, crucially. Trying to go from A to B, really doubling down when you're not doing well and pushing forward is actually completely counterproductive in those sorts of situations. So I think the early Chinese thinkers did have an important insight here. But as you said, they involved themselves in this paradox that's in the title of the book, Try Not to Try. How do you try not to try? The problem, the unique problem that they have is they think that to be successful, you have to be relaxed and spontaneous. But trying on command to be relaxed and spontaneous is paradoxical. And in the book, I explain from a cognitive scientific perspective why that is. Because if I tell you, you know, stop being so tense, relax. Right. <laughs> I'm activating the part of your brain, loosely speaking, the prefrontal cortex that we're actually trying to shut off. We'll no doubt come back to the prefrontal cortex a little later when we yeah. talk about the effects of alcohol on the brain. But do you, by the way, think, as an aside, that we fetishize productivity and busyness in our lives? There's a sense that, you know, in a work context, particularly when someone says, how are you? It's de rigueur to say, I'm busy. Yeah. One dare yeah. not say, I'm sort of reasonably dispensable and inactive <laughs> at the moment and quite happy so. Yeah, it's a strange thing. It's totally in academia, at least, you know, you ask people how they're doing and, oh, you know, crazed. And it's always classes starting and committees. I've never had anyone say, oh, things are going great. I've got my schedule under control. <laughs> you know, it's everyone's always running. And I think it's unhelpful. I've, I've been thinking just personally how to fix that. And I, I do think a really concrete takeaway from taking the spontaneity thing seriously is the importance of building in downtime to your days and 
having time when you're not double tasking and running from one thing to another. Because it's really hard to do good creative work when you're being chased. You really need to have time to let your mind wander and let things percolate. And people just don't get that kind of time anymore. And then there's plenty of industrial revolution hangover in that kind of thinking. And we see plenty of that spillover in our work today. And there's plenty of research and evidence, of course, that some of the great creative minds and thinkers and brilliant achievers of the last hundred plus years, you know, only worked a maximum of, say, four, maybe five hours a day at peak concentration and took long sleeps and walks and, you know, were very focused in the way that they work and managed far sooner than we did to break out of the nine Mm -hmm. to five anachronism. Yeah, I'm, I'm sometimes embarrassed to tell people about my work schedule when I'm writing, but it's, yeah. it's more like that. <laughs> I, you know, I write, I get up early when I'm writing well, I get up early and I write really intensely for three hours, maybe three and a half. But then I eat a big lunch, take a nap, I go and work out in the afternoon. And then ideally I get another good work chunk in in the late afternoon, early evening, but then I'm done. Sometimes when I'm writing intensely, what will happen is I'll often get woken up in the middle of the night and have entire pages written, just delivered to me by my brain. And I used to, in my younger days, just think, oh, I'll remember that. And I'd go back to sleep, but I never would. So I've learned that, you know, you can't look that gift horse in the mouth. You have to get up and write it down. So I will sometimes get up and work in the middle of the night. But if I do that, then I'll sleep in. So I think that if you're doing creative work, I don't think most people could do more than like four hours of real honest work a day cognitively, right? Then you can do other things like answer email or, you know, arrange schedules and things that don't require creativity. But it's hard to do extended creative work unless you're really on some kind of crazy tear. Exactly. I mean, Churchill was reputed to have almost two short working days within a 24-hour period. He would finish up, I think, at about five o'clock, probably after having consumed a reasonable amount of champagne and cigar smoke, then have a medium-length sleep (laughs) and would then rise possibly at, say, 9 p.m. and then do another half day's work. So, I mean, each to their own. But nevertheless, there's the principle of taking breath and resting as an important part of regeneration. Yeah, Yeah, no, people don't realize the importance of that, the the kind of incubation that we don't get time for. Yeah, I think, I mean, people talk about the 10,000 hours of practice, which I think is a a concept which has been probably stretched a bit too widely and is applicable to some (laughs) skills and not all. But I think the research goes that for every 10,000 hours of something that you do with any level of concentration, you need another 12,000 hours to recuperate from. So therefore, rest and play is just about this this idea of work-life balance. It's an equally valuable other side of the same coin, if that makes sense. It's just a slightly different way of thinking about it rather than the idea of now I'm finally putting my feet up and pausing. Actually, the rest is just as valuable time as the work. Now, anyway, we digress slightly, but because, of course, I want to talk about being drunk. Uh, And last year, (laughs) it's related. Of course, it's 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 related. I mean, of course, there is great richness to to all of As you said, you are something of a polymath and a a, a generalist, but within, I think, a clear framework. So it's straightforward enough, I think, to connect the dots along your slightly circuitous but fascinating journey. Of course, last year, then you wrote the book, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization, in which you talk about alcohol's role in our lives through millennia. And you say, amongst plenty of other things, that of course, there's very good reason why we have historically gotten drunk and that it's no accident. In fact, that I think in your words that the drinkers, the smokers and the trippers emerge triumphant in the brutal competition of cultural groups. I think I'm quoting you there. Or maybe you were quoting someone else. That sounds about you. Sounds so let's right. get right yeah, to it then. I mean, yeah, what are the advantages yeah. of getting wasted now and again? 
Yeah, it's so wasted. You know, I just saw there's a summary of my book, very brief, coming out in the New York Times tomorrow, I think, where it describes me as advocating getting plastered. <laughs> People like that word. It was a bit of a but provocation, really but I know that's not what you're arguing. Um, I mean, most of, yeah, but, you know, the most of the benefits I'm talking about come at about 0.08 BAC. So what the Germans would call having a schwips. I don't think we have a really, maybe buzz, in English, maybe it's slightly buzzed. There are a lot of advantages. So the connection, direct connection between my earlier work and drunk relates to this paradox that we were just talking about. So it is directly, if you're trying to use your mind to shut your mind down, it's directly paradoxical. So what do you do about that? The early Chinese thinkers that I look at developed a variety of strategies for kind of distracting you or tricking you into forgetting about the fact that you're trying to be spontaneous. So they'd, you know, give you, they'd say, sit like this and breathe or do these rituals or, you know, engage in a practice that will distract you from the fact that you're trying to relax. They all are useful in various ways. But what occurred to me, there's one early Taoist text that uses the example of a drunken person as an analogy for what the Taoist sage is like. And that a little light went off in my head. I was like, oh, you know what? So it's directly paradoxical. If I'm saying to myself, relax, it's going to be counterproductive. But if I could not be ignoring that problem and just be sipping a liquid, and it's very gradually just doing that job for me. So if I could take an external substance and use that to turn my PFC down, that's a way around the paradox, right? You're not trying to do it yourself. You're using an external substance. So it started to occur to me that cultures may have figured out that chemical intoxicants were a useful technology to get around the paradox of wu-wei. So in situations where spontaneity, where a kind of lack of inhibition, a kind of flexibility is useful, one way to do it is to use a substance that'll just go in and turn down the PFC, which is one of the things alcohol does. So the, all of the positive effects of alcohol that I look at are related to this depressant effect of turning down the PFC, reducing our cognitive control. And then also alcohol simultaneously is boosting these feel-good hormones. So pro-social hormones, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, and making us feel good about ourselves, improving our mood, and also making us feel better about other people. So there are a variety of effects, but they're all related yeah. to this and, and basic And what role has alcohol played in your both personal and professional life? So one important function of alcohol is to enhance creativity. So the prefrontal cortex is a really important part of our brain. It's what allows us to get up on time, get to work, focus on a task. And it's obviously valuable. It's very expensive physiologically. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't doing important work for us. But evolution was faced by a design trade-off. So it wanted us to have PFCs and be successful adults. But the PFC, one downside of it is interferes with lateral thinking. So it allows us to focus, but it then prevents us from seeing possibilities in the periphery. And we're less able to see new things. We're less able to make connections that are unusual. So this is why you see with kids, kids are super creative. And I talk about there's really good experimental evidence that kids are much better at creativity tasks than hum than adults are. And that's because they don't have PFCs yet. It's the last part. It's interesting. It's the last part of a human being to develop because it's the last part of the brain to develop. And it doesn't fully mature until you're in your 20s. So I think one of the ways evolution dealt with the design trade-off is to slow walk the development of the PFC and give us this time where we're flexible and creative and we can learn and trust. But once we're adults, once we're past our mid-20s, PFCs fully inform and it's very difficult for us to be creative in the way kids are.
Alcohol is a way to temporarily reverse that process. It takes us back to being more like seven-year-olds in terms of seeing new possibilities. And so alcohol has always been associated in cultures around the world throughout history with artists and poets and creative types. And it's not a myth. It actually, I, you know, I look at both direct and indirect experimental evidence that depressing the PFC is good for creativity. And so um, one way in which in my personal life that I've used it was actually writing the proposal for this book. This isn't, I don't think this didn't end up in the book itself, but I'd written about 10 drafts of the proposal and my agent kept sending it back to me and saying, I'm not sending this out. It's not because she's, she's from Manhattan, sugarcoat things. She's like, it's boring. It's not good. Yeah. It's like, all right. And she was right. It, all the science was there. All the research was there. The arguments were all in place, but it was like a, here's the problem. Here's the, and it was just very ABC and she was right. And then I realized, you know what? I haven't taken my own advice in the book. I haven't written any of this drunk because at that point it had all been written on caffeine. And I was in New Zealand, actually, this was pre-pandemic. I was at a, a conference and I was going to meet colleagues for dinner, but I had about two hours. And so I went down to the hotel bar with my laptop and ordered a Negroni. And by the end of that Negroni, what is now pages one through two of the book just really felt like they, it appeared to me. It's like the middle of the night thing where I really felt like I was just taking dictation. And that's the part that everyone remarks on. It's what draws everyone into the book. And that was the product of writing at probably about 0 0.08, 0 0.1 BAC. So, you know, I'd had the preparation. Obviously, this is this balance between preparation and spontaneity, right? If I hadn't done all that research and hadn't kind of gone through 10 versions of the proposal, I wouldn't have any material to work with. So the crucial thing is knowing what the right balance between those two things is. You have to put in the work, but then you need to know when it's time to let go and get an insight and do something creative. It reminds me analogously of the world of sport and what athletes would talk about being in the zone or being in flow. And I think you don't get that privilege unless you've put in the hours of preparation. It doesn't yeah. just come like a miracle, but it comes through all, yeah, once all the hard yeah. graft yeah. has been put in, then that's the reward. Yeah, no, my ex-brother-in-law is a jazz pianist in Rome. And when we would go visit, he would be down in the basement. So first of all, he's an incredibly seriously trained pianist, you know, classically and in every way you can imagine. He also would practice improvising. So he'd be down in the basement just messing around, practicing riffs. He was incredibly prepared, right? So that when he went up on a stage and he started to improvise, it sounded good. <laughs> Whereas if I went up on a stage and started to improvise at a piano, it would sound horrible. So yeah, you need the preparation, but then you need to know when to let go. And I do, and try not to try, I, I look at the literature on choking in sports. There's a great book by Sian Bylock on this called Choke, about how once you're trained, so high-level performers put in whatever, those 10,000 hours, but then to perform well, they need to shut that off. And the best way to mess them up is to get them to focus on their technique or to engage their conscious mind. So if you ask you know, professional baseball players to think about the path of their bat as they're hitting, they can't hit anymore. And John McEnroe, I tell this story, it may be apocryphal, but supposedly John McEnroe took advantage of this. If his opponent, for instance, was serving really well, when they switch sides, he'd be like, hey, your serve is really good today. What are you doing differently? And he'd just get the person to start thinking about it, and then they couldn't serve anymore. So yeah, you need to know, and this works for writing, it works for anything. 
I'm here in Denver with my partner. She was going on stage with David Byrne in front of a thousand people, and she was incredibly nervous about it. And she was going to be asked to talk about stuff she wasn't an expert in. And she put in, you know, in all this work. And, you know, I left her alone for hours before it started because I knew she'd want to pace around the hotel room muttering to herself. But then when she got up there, it looked like pure spontaneity. You know, she was completely relaxed and it went off amazingly. But it was only because she understood that balance between putting in the work, getting it down, but then knowing to relax in the moment. Interestingly, in sport, of course, and it's something of a cliche, but the best, most brilliant performers are often the least good coaches because they just cannot explain or break down the technique which they are expressing so brilliantly. Now, let's go back to the evolutionary perspective because there's something rather confusing about alcohol's prevalence in our history because for a substance which has such dangerous, poisonous side effects, you'd assume it's an evolutionary mistake. You'd have thought that by now we might have found a predictable substitute which offers some of the same sorts of benefits, but without the physiological or mental effects. But that's not the case at all, is it? It's survived. There's there's some reward which we're still getting here, which we might think we're not supposed to be getting it. But nevertheless, it's curious. This is the central mystery that drunk is trying to respond to is why do people like to get drunk? And the shallow answer is, well, because it makes us feel good. And that's true. It triggers rewards or gets in the brain. But that's not really an answer. The deeper question then is, if you want to rephrase it, why does evolution allow it to make us feel good? So I talk about the dominant theory. And this, you know, when I started looking into the literature, the standard theory is it's an evolutionary mistake. And there's two types of mistakes. It could be the first, the, I think the dominant theory, I think what you would typically read in a Psych 101 textbook is what I call an evolutionary hijack. So ethanol is hijacking a reward network in the brain that evolved to reward other types of behavior. And we've just figured that out. And so we've figured out this pleasure button and we just keep pushing it (laughs) like a rat hitting a button to get cocaine delivered in one of those experiments. So that's the standard story. And it is certainly the case that there are human vices that are the result of evolutionary hijacks. So I start off the book by talking about masturbation, which is the classic example of a hijack. There's this reward, the orgasm, that is the best thing that can happen to a human being. It's the biggest carrot that evolution has at its disposal. It saves that great reward for the thing it wants you to do most of all, which is pass on copies of your genes into the next generation. So reproductive sex is the adaptive target of the orgasm. That's what it's supposed to reinforce. Humans and other species have figured out they could get that reward in lots of other different ways, right? So we engage in all kinds of non-reproductive sexual hijinks. In the case of these things, though, they're relatively non-costly. So evolution's not staying up at night worrying about this because the basic system, the way it's set up, works really well. And evolution's not interested in getting it perfectly right. It's just as long as it works, it's happy. So that's an example. Evolutionary hijacks are often not costly, and that's why they're allowed to survive if they're ancient, which is this is an ancient one. There's also what I call evolutionary mismatches. So this is where something was adaptive in our evolutionary past, but is no longer. And the classic example of that is our taste for junk food. So we have this craving for sugar and fats. For most of our evolutionary history, this has been very adaptive. It's been hard to get sugar and fat in quantity. And so if you came across it, you should gorge on it 
because you don't know the next time you're going to get it. It only becomes maladaptive and it becomes very maladaptive, incredibly costly when we're living in these industrial societies where we have too much food. You know, we have access to junk food. We go to a 7-Eleven and load up on ice cream and Slim Jims. Then it's leading to obesity, diabetes, all these very costly impacts on the body. Evolution hasn't had time to deal with that, though. So this is a very, very recent problem, and it's still not even universal. So there are plenty of places right now where it's still people are having trouble getting enough calories. So this is a case mismatches are generally allowed to happen. Mismatches generally exist when there just hasn't been enough time for evolution to deal with it. So my argument in Drunk is that our taste for intoxicants is like neither one of these things. It's unlike masturbation, it's very costly. It's on par with junk food in terms of its negative impact on the body. But unlike junk food, it's ancient. We've been producing and consuming alcohol for as long as we've been doing anything as a species in an organized fashion. So probably at least 20,000 years and certainly direct evidence for 13,000 years ago. And so this is the puzzle is why evolution's let this happen. One possibility is it just hasn't figured out a cure for it. So that is possible. Sometimes, you know, there's just no, evolution can't come up with a fix. And there's various reasons for this, path dependence. That's why we have these crappy backs, right? Our lower backs, evolution can't do anything with that because it was stuck with tree-dwelling primates and had to do these various hacks to get us to walk upright. No one would design a human being the way we're designed if they were doing it from scratch, but evolution was stuck with what it had. Sometimes there's just not a genetic variant that would fix it. Just the shuffling, random shuffling of genes hasn't kicked something up. But I point out that if our taste for alcohol is a mistake, there's a solution to it that exists in the human gene pool. So this is this set of two mutations that interferes with alcohol metabolism and leads to what's sometimes called Asian flushing syndrome. So if you have this set of mutations when you drink alcohol, your face turns red, you get heart palpitations, you get nauseous, it's really, really unpleasant. If our taste for alcohol is a mistake, this is the solution to that problem because people who have this don't like to drink. And so when people say, well, alcohol makes us feel good, it doesn't have to make us feel good. In fact, there are some humans who it doesn't make feel good. This is an ancient mutation. It's, it probably happened around seven, ten thousand 10,000 years ago, around present-day Shanghai. And it's remained localized. It hasn't really spread much beyond East Asia. And so there is a genetic solution, and it just sits there. There are cultural evolutionary solutions. Ban alcohol. <laughs> you know, there's all, been all these attempts at prohibition, right? It's a pretty good answer to the problem. Those have all typically not done very well, and they're even today not very widespread in the world. So I argue that given that you put on your evolutionary hat and look at it from that perspective, there's got to be these benefits going on on the other side that's keeping the taste for intoxication, both in our gene pool and in our cultural repertoire. Yeah. And is it then inevitable that a substance with such power must have downsides, perhaps in the same way that the thrills one gets from extreme sports come with risk or the collective effervescence born of a, say, a religious ceremony or a sporting occasion can produce moments of individual or communal ecstasy, but the highs must be temporary? It's got to be the case. Yeah. What's interesting is there are other chemical, and so I talk mainly about alcohol because that's the king of intoxicants. It's by far the most commonly used intoxicant. There are other chemical intoxicants that are in some ways better than alcohol. Cannabis does not have the same physiological impact. It's actually not so bad for you. It's also not physically addictive. So one of the worst things about alcohol is the fact that it creates physical dependency and cannabis doesn't. So there are substances that would be better, but they have their own downsides. So the problem with cannabis is its effects cognitively are very variable. 
individual to individual. So I have friends who smoke and want to talk about philosophy and go dancing and chat with people. When I smoke, I get really paranoid and then I fall asleep. It's just in every strain. It's not sativa versus indica. I've had everything you could imagine. Same effect. And so that's a problem. Your social drug can't be one that puts some people to sleep and makes other people talkative. The other problem with cannabis is it's hard to dose. So smoking, you get variable amounts. If you go the edible route, there's a delay of onset, so it's hard to judge. Alcohol is super easy to dose, and it has very predictable effects across individuals. So I just think through cultural evolutionary processes, we've zeroed in on alcohol because it's just the least bad option of the various options we could have had. There's the answer. Why is alcohol the king of intoxicants? It's very predictable amongst other things. It's consistent. I'm interested in the beer before bread theory, which you talk yeah, about in yeah. the book. It's easy to make. It's the easy origins to discover. Of alcohol. So, this is the um, yeah. school of thought that, in fact, hunter-gatherers discovered alcohol before agriculture 12,000 years ago. In other words, they wanted to get high first, not make bread. What's your perspective on that? How much credence do you give to that theory? I think it's pretty convincing. So the standard story about why we like to drink is that it's an evolutionary mistake. And the standard story about how we discovered drinking is also a mistake story. So we had agriculture first, and then once we had some surplus of grain, maybe we screwed around with trying to do different things with it and discover that if you left it sitting around long enough, it would ferment and make beer. So the standard story is it was an accident, and it happened as a byproduct of agriculture. So we already had civilization, and then we discovered intoxication. And it does seem like it's got to be the other way around. Just talking about the Fertile Crescent, you've got hunter-gatherers coming together, building monumental religious architecture, engaging in these rituals. We don't know exactly what they were like, but we do know they involved incredible feasting. So we have all these remains of gazelle bones, and they were feasting. And they were drinking large quantities of liquid. So we have these big vats. At the one site that I talk about in the book, Gobekli Lake Tepe, we don't have direct chemical evidence of alcohol, but they were drinking beer. <laughs> we know that we have direct chemical evidence from other places in the region that show that people were making beer at least a thousand years before this. And so here's a case where you have hunter-gatherers coming together to essentially make and drink beer and erect these, these monumental sites. And so the argument is this is what kind of got them to eventually start to get the idea of settling down. It wasn't to make bread. It was to make more and better beer. And this is also a pattern you see in other parts of the world. So I talk about South America, the teosinte, the, the ancestor, wild ancestor to corn, to maize, makes terrible grain. If you were a hunter-gatherer and you were hungry and you wanted to make better and more food, you would ignore this plant because it makes very bad grain. What it does really is really good at is making beer because it's got this very starchy, sugary stock that you can ferment. And so clearly this plant was chosen for its ability to make beer, not to make tortillas. And then eventually, as they cultivated, it started to get bigger and bigger seed heads. And eventually, we, you know, it got more useful as a food item. And you see this in other parts of the world as well. It's, it seems like the first plants that get domesticated were chosen for their psychoactive properties and not for their nutrition. So in this is a sense in which, in a very literal way, intoxication gave rise to civilization. The desire to get intoxicated is what motivated hunter-gatherers to settle down and start cultivating plants. And you see this pattern, whether we're talking about beer or kava or any other approximately equivalent intoxicants. Despite 
you know, you make a very balanced argument, by the way, throughout the book between the pros and cons of drinking. But my sense is that I read between the lines that you are suggesting, you can tell me if I'm barking up the wrong tree here, that those who abstain from alcohol are really missing something of the richness that life has to offer. Of course, you mentioned the proverb in vino veritas attributed to the Roman author and philosopher Pliny the Elder. So I mean, should we be a little suspicious of inappropriate sobriety as fellow writer Ian Gately said and you quote <laughs> in the book? Yeah, I talk about this. There is a, you see a very common cultural trip of people being suspicious of people who don't drink. And this is because, so one of the, fun, I talked about the creativity function. One of the other crucial functions of alcohol is to help humans solve cooperation dilemmas. So we often face these situations where the best outcome is if you and I choose to forego our own selfish interest and do something for the group. And paradoxically, then we will both benefit more in the end. In the long run, we actually do better individually if we can cooperate in the short term in a way that's not necessarily exactly what we would want selfishly. We face these cooperation dilemmas all the time. The tricky feature of them is to get the payoff, you have to make yourself vulnerable being taken advantage of by the other person if they're not really trustworthy. And so humans have then also evolved this incredibly elaborate machinery for both displaying and assessing trustworthiness. So we read facial expressions, body language, tone of voice. And there's a kind of arms race going on between an ability to get better at detecting faking and cheating and getting better at faking and cheating. And humans are supernaturally, like chimpanzees would think, if they could even understand our abilities, would find them magical. The way I can tell if someone's getting bored or, you know, is, wants something from me or maybe is a little shifty. In this evolutionary arms race, cultures have an interest in putting their fingers on the scale. They want to help the detectors because they want to get cooperation off the ground. If I'm going to try to trick you into trusting me when you shouldn't, I need my PFC in perfect working order because lying is a cognitively really demanding task. I've got to keep in mind the thing that I'm telling you is true, but also I know that it's not. And so I know what reality is. And I've got to somehow on the fly be negotiating this tension, making sure that my facial expressions and my emotional displays fit the thing I'm telling you and not what's real. So this is like, you're really like revving up your PFC, you're overloading it to lie. And so if you are worried about that, a good way to kind of keep me from doing that is to give me a substance that's going to take that offline temporarily. And so, you know, in the same way we shake hands when we meet to show we're not carrying a weapon, when we sit down and start drinking together, we're cognitively disarming. We're taking our PFCs out and putting them on the table and saying, I have voluntarily impaired my ability to lie to you. And so I think that's the root of this kind of suspicion of people in social situations who don't drink is that they're not disarming. And I talk about this fictional example, but it's a great example of the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones where everyone's getting, and it's a classic example of how alcohol is used, right? You have these two potentially hostile groups, but they need to cooperate against a common enemy. How do they do it? They marry off one of their own to the other one, and then they all get really, really drunk together, <laughs> except one guy. And whenever they come to fill his wine glass, he puts his hand over it. And that's because he's planning to kill everyone, right? He's the one, Lord Bolton, who executes everyone. So there is a reason why we're suspicious of non-drinkers. In the book, I try to walk this line between acknowledging that and explaining what the reasons for it are, 
while also recognizing there are just so many completely valid reasons why someone wouldn't want to drink. If you have alcoholic tendencies, and probably about 15% of the human population does, you should not drink. So I do think we have a problem where we can recognize the, the social usefulness of alcohol. We have to simultaneously realize all these perfectly legitimate reasons for why people wouldn't want to drink. And we have to somehow create a playing field where both of those can be accommodated. And so I talk at the end about various ways where you can level the playing field a bit for non-drinkers. By I was thinking about this recently. I gave a talk at a pub in London, and my host had recently decided to stop drinking because he had been struggling with alcoholism, and problems with had a family history of it. He just decided his life was better without alcohol in it. But what's great now is there are actually quite decent non-alcoholic beers. So everyone at this pub thing was drinking alcohol, at least as far as I could tell. But he could drink as well and be part of the group and be drinking, but not be you know, harming himself with alcohol. So there are various ways you can create a situation where you're not stigmatizing non-drinkers. You're letting them participate while still capturing the social benefits of everyone disarming themselves a bit. Or perhaps critically, not being seen to be excluding oneself by drinking a Coke. You can drink an alcoholic beer quite surreptitiously, if you so wish. I think that's important. The optics over it have some signaling value, of course. Absolutely. And, you know, we're also getting increasingly sophisticated and nice tasting mocktails, you know, so you could be drinking a cocktail that actually doesn't have alcohol in it. So there are ways to do this. And the other thing, especially if you are just a moderate drinker and you want to just limit your intake, you get a pretty decent placebo effect from non-alcoholic versions. So that's great because you're getting the psychological benefits with none of the physiological harms. Yeah. And I also think that nowadays the relationship between alcohol and machoism is diminishing. And certainly for younger generations, I mean, I'm making a huge generalization, but are more health conscious the days of, you know, sort of big, heavy group binge drinking. Certainly when I was at university, I think that trend has declined somewhat. And obviously the onset of social media and cameras and so on also puts people a little more on their guard for better or worse. Yeah. No, the days, you know, you see this also in business and politics, right? The, the days of the three martini lunch. And there's something I do quote this economist piece about this that I think has something to it, you know, which is pointing out the benefits and the costs. So the benefits are the relationship. They're talking specifically about the relationship between British politicians and journalists and, you know, saying this is a much healthier environment now to get you know, a comment from a politician, you no longer, especially if you're like a young female reporter, you no longer have to wander into this dark den of drunk men <laughs> who are hitting on you. And it's much more fair and sane and grown up. But they're pointing out you do lose something and that you don't get those kind of honest comments that you might have gotten back in the day when, you know, somebody was two martinis in and they would say something maybe they wouldn't say without drinking. There's another article I read that suggested that the decline of drinking in politics may have led to polarization in U.S. politics, because there used to be these bars where across the aisle, as it were, you know, Republicans and Democrats at the end of the day would end up at this bar and they would drink. So alcohol is not only downregulating your PFC, it's disinhibiting you. It's also boosting these feel-good hormones, so serotonin, endorphins. And there's a suggestion that, you know, the demise of cross-party drinking may have made 
division worse because there's a way in which you can kind of come to an agreement with your enemy, again, two martinis in, where you wouldn't necessarily over lunch. Well, there's the sporting analogy as well. You know, you fight on the field and then at the end of play, you, you come together and shake hands and have a drink. I think it's a similar situation in British politics as well. I'm not 100% sure, but I think the fact that you know the debate has also become far more polarised here as well means that sort of sense of friendship and community has dissipated somewhat. I mean, I'm fascinated, by the way, with when you were thinking about the connection between alcohol, problem solving and cooperation. And of course, as we think about the way work has changed more broadly, the Industrial Revolution changed our relationship hugely with alcohol. Because, of course, before that, it played a very big role in the workday, whether in politics or elsewhere. But now we touched on this earlier on, the convention of the nine to five workday. Everything is far more regimented and regulated, unionized. Drinking on the job, and of course, in certain circumstances, quite rightly discouraged, by the way, goes without saying. But, you know, of course, in the sort of world of professional services, let's say our work drinking is pushed to the end of the day, if at all. And it's sort of, I can't help but wonder, you know, should we drink more at work to solve complex problems? There is still a role made for that, I think. So there's a couple of things to point out. One is that if we're talking about pre modern societies, for most of our evolutionary history, we've been drinking two to three percent. ABV beers. If you're drinking that, especially if you're working, you're laboring out in the sun and you're sweating and you're eating food, you can drink a two to three percent beer all day and not really get drunk. So they were adapted to drinking much milder beverages than we have now. And partly that's because we've been pushing yeast to get tougher and tougher so we can make stronger and stronger beers and wines. But the real game changer, as I point out, is once we get distilled liquors, that becomes a much more potent and dangerous substance. So part of the worry is just we have we have access to this super-powered form of alcohol that we, we haven't had. I mean, in Europe, we didn't have distilled liquors widely available until the 1600s, 1700s, which in the story I'm telling is yesterday, right? It's a really recent development. So that's one thing. You know, and the other is genuine concerns about, you know, creating hostile workplaces and, again, creating situations where people who don't drink feel disadvantaged, I think is a really important concern. But you do see organizations making a place in the workday for alcohol. So I talk in the book about when I gave a talk at Google, one of the Google campuses, and talked about alcohol and creativity. I was presenting on trying not to try, but it was I was starting to think about the alcohol book at this point. And the first question, someone raised their hand, they were like, do you know about the Balmer Peak? And this is supposedly, it's almost certainly apocryphal, but the claim is that Steve Balmer, the CEO of Microsoft, discovered this blood alcohol content at which he was supernaturally good at coding. And it was a very narrow blood alcohol content. So supposedly he would keep himself hooked up to an alcohol IV to keep himself right at that level of inebriation. And it captures this idea that, you know, the right amount of inebriation is an important element in creativity. And after the talk, after the Q&A, they were going to take me on a campus tour. And they said, well, we know where we're taking you first. And they took me to their whiskey room. And this is amazing. I was very jealous because I've been to single malt. They had an amazing single malt collection. But when they, as a coding team, run into a barrier, they just can't figure out how to solve this problem. Instead of drinking more coffee and pulling an all-nighter and staring at their screens some more, they stop what they're doing and they go to the whiskey room and they pour themselves not very big, but just the right amount of whiskey. And there's foosball table and, you know, beanbag chairs and places, whiteboards where people can write stuff down. And they gently turn off the PFC, raise some, you know, feel-good hormones 
and just talk about it. And they said that's how they get past these problems. And the fact that alcohol disinhibits you is really important for group innovation because it's individually making you as an individual more creative. But because you're disinhibited, you also are more willing to blurt out something that maybe your sober self would be embarrassed to say. Maybe you're stepping on someone else's toes. Maybe you're saying something that's their specialty and you, you, know, you don't want them to correct you. But creativity needs risk-taking. Like you need to be throwing out ideas, even if they sound stupid. And so I think Google's an example of a corporation that has figured out a way to strategically incorporate alcohol into their workday when needed, right? And it's not that people are sitting around drinking all the time. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's very task-specific, it's funny because when I was reading the book, I referenced the Google anecdote to a friend who knows Google quite well. And he said, yes, not only is there whisk rooms, a lot of the coders and developers have some kind of liquor under their table. I mean, it's very much part of the culture. I'm, assuming, I'm sure in a reasonably controlled way. But of course, the way in thinking about you know, the introduction of distilled liquors, as you say, the relative sort of blink of the eye in the evolutionary terms. But with that, you know, the way that we sort of consume alcohol has, of course, completely changed in the last few hundred years and even more so probably in more recent times as the access and availability to these sort of stronger alcohols has become far more sort of straightforward. The traditional mechanisms which have, and you sort of touched on this, which have regulated drinking in the past, ceremonies, rituals, religious customs, they become less important. And actually, of course, we don't have to drink in groups in public view any longer. Then you think that you have access to these far more potent drinks. And it seems that all these sort of shifts coming together are really not for the better. And it seems that therefore the introduction of distilled liquor is a really critical turning point in the history of alcohol consumption and indeed in your narrative. It's one of two modern developments that I argue have made alcohol more dangerous recently and possibly tipped the balance in terms of, you know, is it overall a pro or a con? So I call them distillation and isolation. So the first one is just this relatively recent access to these wildly powerful forms of alcohol that are still just ethanol, but they're so much more powerful. I really think they should be considered a different drug. If you're, again, you're drinking a two to 3% ABV beer, it's almost physically impossible to hurt yourself on that. Right? There's so much liquid you would have to drink to get a big enough dose to like black out, especially if you're you know, a full-size adult. It's just really hard to do. If you have access to tequila, you can knock yourself out in 20 minutes. So it's just our bodies are not designed. We have this very elaborate mechanism for as soon as ethanol comes into our body, we have this dedicated mechanism that breaks it down and gets us out of our body as quickly as possible. That mechanism can't deal with tequila. It's just coming in too fast, right? And I argue a lot of the benefits of alcohol come at kind of moderate levels of intoxication. But if you're drinking distilled liquors, especially if you're doing shots, you can blow past that sweet spot in 10 minutes and just be now into very dangerous levels of inebriation. So that's one problem. The other problem is isolation. And this is, as you said, traditionally, every society I know of that uses alcohol is a little bit worried about it and has regulations and rituals around it. No one cares how you drink water. There's no rituals for drinking water. You just, whenever you're thirsty, you drink water because it's an unproblematic substance. Alcohol is a problematic substance. It's a special substance. And so, you know, I talk about, for instance, ancient Greece, where at the symposium, the wine party, the symposiarch is in charge of deciding the water-wine mixture, when to pass the wine around. And they are controlling, essentially, the rate of consumption. In a Chinese traditional or modern Chinese banquet, you can't drink at will 
you can only drink when someone makes a toast. And who's allowed to make a toast is very strictly regulated by ritual. Even in a, if you think about a modern environment that seems really informal, like a pub, you go out to a pub with your friends, you typically drink in rounds. And so if you down your beer immediately and you want another one, you have to wait until we all finish our beers and we order another round. Cocktail servers could not make eye contact with you if they decide you've had too much. Or the bartender could be at the other end of the bar and ignore you if he wants to slow you down. Family situations, you could have your mother-in-law give you a dirty look if you reach across to refill your wine glass too quickly, right? We have all these subtle ways, conscious and unconscious, of regulating each other's drinking. This very clever one, I talk about this Norwegian anthropologist who was studying these 20-year-olds. I talk about an informal situation. It's a house party, so they're just getting drunk at somebody's house. But there's this informal rule that's observed pretty strictly that you don't recycle or throw away your bottles. When you finish a bottle, you put it in front of you. And it's a way to kind of just be signaling, this is how much I've had. Everyone knows how much I've had. And that's going to moderate your, your consumption. All of those social safety features are gone when you have private access to alcohol in your home. And this is a relatively recent development. Having private access to alcohol is historically almost unheard of. And yet we can now, I mean, now with COVID, right, you can get liquor delivered to your house. So you don't even have to leave your house. You could have, you know, a case of vodka, enough alcohol, in a case of vodka, you have enough alcohol to kill an entire village of people. And you can just have it in your house and drink as much of it as you want if you're alone. That's a really new, evolutionarily novel situation. And how dangerous it is, I think, you know, it's interesting. COVID lockdowns, in a way, were a natural experiment showing how important social controls are. Hey, I have an idea. Let's make everyone stay at home. No one's allowed to go out but they have access to alcohol and let's see what happens. <laughs> it was really bad. You know, by the way, in South Africa, for a lot of the lockdown, they banned alcohol. You couldn't buy any. And I think they also banned tobacco purchase as well, because I think they were worried that, you know, if people were sort of locked up, it was going to cause greater domestic violence. I think it's a sort of a double-edged sword. Clearly, it's obvious, you know, you can see both sides of that argument. And a massive black market sprung up immediately. So I think the South African ban was not very successful. No, almost certainly not. But I think COVID undoubtedly limited free conversation and creativity. And I think alcohol has had disproportionately more negative effects on people throughout that period. And I think they still linger. And of course, rather than bring people together and foster new ideas, it's even greater dependency and isolation. I think the after effects still exist. Just going back to talking, you talked about the unofficial regulators and you mentioned, you know, bar staff can turn a blind eye. It reminded me, you made the this really interesting hypothesis. I can't remember whether it was yours or it was someone else in the book that the idea that by increasing base salaries of bar and restaurant workers, we'd immediately slash the number of drink driving deaths, public fighting and other ills. Tell us that story. Yeah, it was my idea. It came out of my experience in the States. So I think it's slightly different. It's very different in Europe, actually. So in Europe, servers tend to get real salaries. In the United States, at least especially when I was uh, waiting tables and working in bars, we would get a special minimum wage for tip earners, which I think I was making like $1.75 an hour or something absurd, because we were making most of our money from tips. And we were actually getting taxed on an estimate of how much tips we were getting. And so if I didn't get tipped, I was actually losing money. Like I was paying taxes on money I didn't get, which was a real issue because I worked in San Francisco. And especially in the summer, we would have these 
these European tourists in who, you know, they don't tip in Europe. They apparently can't read their guidebook to learn you're supposed to tip in U.S. And I would get these tables of French people who would drink all night and leave me, you know, some change on the tray. So there's a real pressure when you're living on tips to sell as much as you can because it's based on the overall bill. And the best way to run up a bill is alcohol. And, you know, alcohol has a nice side effect of making people less inhibited and more generous. And so there's a perverse incentive system in the U.S. to, if you're a tip earner, to let people get as drunk as possible and even encourage them to drink more. And that seems completely counter to what you would want from a public policy perspective. And so I think eliminating tips or at least making it more like Europe where they're kind of an extra add-on and making the bulk of people's wages from a proper salary that they're getting from the institution would reduce problem drinking in places like the U.S. I was interested in the book also in the discussion around technology and the role of alcohol, whether indeed alcohol remains as the king of intoxicants, as we see, you know, the importance and prevalence of internet, TV, smart devices in our lives. And maybe there's a view which says, well, actually, we no longer need alcohol alone to de-stress, to connect, to be entertained, because we have other distractions. I mean, my initial thought is that, you know, we are by nature creative and communal creatures. And so for all the benefits of technology, I'm not sure where all the other devices associated with us actually sort of enhance our lives and give us the same sorts of highs that alcohol can. I wonder what you think about that. So one of the functions of alcohol is that de-stressing and also helping the transition from workday to leisure. And certainly putting on a TV show can do the same thing. I think the problem is, especially the way most people watch TV, it's isolating right? It's you alone. Maybe you're sitting next to your partner, but you're both having private experiences. That's very different from what you would get if you were sitting down with a glass of wine on the veranda having a chat, right? It's inherently isolating, enjoying that kind of media. But you're right, there are other techniques we can use. And I do raise the possibility at the end of the book that maybe there are better drugs, maybe that we understand how to manipulate psychoactives better. We could design drugs that give us the benefits of alcohol without the downsides. And so, you know, I talk about psilocybin as one example, where in its natural form, it's far too powerful to use as a social drug. But we now know how to isolate the active ingredient and put it in a different dose. And it's possible, you know, this new trend of microdosing, maybe, you know, microdosing psilocybin would give us the same kind of relaxing of cognitive control, enhanced creativity, feeling a little better about other people without the addiction and the liver damage, and the cancer risk and all the other bad things. So it is possible. Yeah, of course. I mean, you may have the similar downsides like with cannabis, which it's harder to control and to predict. An argument you don't make in the book, which might be something for a part two or an addendum in a few years time, is an extension of the technology debate, which is thinking about what people refer to as the metaverse. If you like these kind of immersive alternative realities, if you like the, the 3D version of the internet, virtual reality, augmented reality. And I think if predictions about the metaverse are true, you know, in decades to come, we won't be conversing at the pub, but, you know, sort of socializing in part by avatar in alternative realities. I mean, I wonder someone who's written a book about the power of alcohol, how that makes you feel. It sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds about as great as doing an interview over Zoom, right? It's just, it's not the same thing. Humans need to be physically together. And partly it's just for maybe once technology gets really, really good, but 
conversation is such a finely tuned dance on the level of microseconds. You know, we're judging whether or not it would be much, at least I have video with you so I can judge when you kind of want me to stop talking and you're ready to interject something. I'm reading that body language, but it's still hard. It'd be much easier if we were in person. You lose these social cues about I'm done talking. You can jump in. Crucially, I think you lack a shared reference in the world. So if you're together physically with someone drinking in a bar, you're seeing the same thing from the same perspective in a way you don't when you're online. Maybe that would be different if you were in a fully immersive virtual reality. Who knows? You know, and the other thing you're losing is smell. I mean, we don't realize the extent to which that's crucial. We are using all sorts of olfactory cues when we're interacting socially with people. So I don't think, unless we become a completely different type of species, we're always going to want to congregate physically with other humans. And I don't think that's going to get changed dramatically. Yeah, I think the potential or the supposed ideal of the metaverse world is a blend of the physical and the digital. But I think the points you make are extremely well made and are a lovely note for us to wrap up the main part of the conversation on and lead us very nicely, if okay with you, Ted, into some concluding quick fire questions. Sure. Great stuff. Okay. What's your most powerful memory? Has got to be getting off my motorcycle in the Marin Headlands. I had ridden across country from New Jersey to San Francisco and had this vague, I sensed that that's where I belonged. And getting off and smelling the wild sage and seeing the colors and realizing this is where human beings are meant to live. That was a very, very powerful memory. Cool. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. I can roll a kayak. Ah, okay. Kind of rare talent. <laughs> yes, indeed. Which book do you gift most regularly? Probably the Zhuangzi. This is an early Taoist text. That's the one I've given to people as a gift, I think, is this translation of this early Taoist text. It's my favorite book. What's your desert island music? Radiohead. Radiohead? Okay. Yeah, it's the only music I know that just I never get tired of listening to. I could quite easily see that being a good match. I could imagine you enjoying that with a single malt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and last but not least, winding down away from work, however you define that, how do you spend your time? Ideally, gardening, kayaking, cooking, and consuming. Fantastic. And with that, Ted, let me thank you hugely for joining me today. I love going a little offbeat in these conversations and exploring subjects which are one, extremely familiar, but also rather mysterious. And I think for most of us, alcohol plays a real role in our lives, but I doubt many of us question why so. And so as a parting thought, I think it must mean something that you know, Jesus's first miracle was turning water into wine. Yes, <laughs> um, I love that. It's, it's, it's rather neat. So as conclusion i encourage you all to take that moral license and go and enjoy a drink and just to say thank you ted once more thanks for having me it was a lot of fun great pleasure i hope you're feeling sufficiently stimulated after that what a fascinating topic alcohol is to herald in 2023 it's something we're on the one hand so familiar with yet most of us actually know rather little about it certainly when it comes to the evolutionary history Adjacently to that, I really like this tension which pops up now and again in behavioural science between things which are superficially very familiar, but on the other hand, rather less obvious. We see it, again, obviously, in money as a good example. We know what it is. It passes through us every day. I don't know whether that's a parallel to alcohol. It may be for some. But certainly money does play to some of our most pronounced unconscious biases. Like with alcohol, boy, do we enjoy it. Boy, does it make the world go round. 
and boy does it make us do silly things. But a little too much of both definitely fucks you up. And with that, Philip Larkin, like to send you merrily into the new year. Please leave me a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast, and I shall see you in 2023.